Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture podcast roundup. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andreu. This week we are thrilled to be joined by legendary music producer Giles Martin, son of producer George, of course, to talk about the deluxe Beatles Revolver album package out next month. And chirpy, chirpy, cheep, cheep. We also welcome author and journalist Will Hodgkinson to chat about his new book, In Perfect Harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain. We watch a house party go horribly wrong in new murder mystery, Bodies, 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 plus brand new Korean thriller, Narco Saints on Netflix. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Now picture the scene. It's 1966 and the little-known combo The Beatles spend some time in a studio called Abbey Road in London. They make tea, they chat, they squabble a little, but maybe more importantly, they record Revolver under the guidance of music producer George Martin. Now, son... Giles Martin has only gone and totally remastered and expanded the album. And by that, I do mean totally. He uses the technology that director Peter Jackson refined during the making of the documentary Get Back. I spoke to Giles after the album playback at Abbey Road to discuss the nuts and bolts of an AI John Lennon, why the album still resonates today and why the tech is a bit like deconstructing a cake plus lots more. Listener, I may end up gushing by the end of it. Let's listen to a track from the album. And yes, Apple Core have cleared it. Hurrah. Here's a bit of Taxman. Welcome, Giles Martin, to The Culture Bunker. Oh, thank you very much for having me in your bunker. <laughs> I was at the playback yesterday and more of that, obviously, now. But can you first tell us what your job title is? What do you actually do to this record called Revolver? And who's your line manager, by the way? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, my job is a, is is really a mix, mix engineer, mm-hmm. I suppose. Uh, I have another guy who works with me called Sam O'Kell. My line manager would be probably be Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, <laughs> I would have thought, but my line manager's... Um, although I doubt they've ever been called that before, but they'd be quite happy to know that I'm calling them my I line. like it reframed as, as such. Somehow it makes me <laughs> comforting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's the team. One question, obviously, is why is Revolver relevant today and why has it been given this treatment? And we'll talk about the treatment of it in a minute. Why is it relevant today? Well, you could ask why are the Beatles relevant today. <laughs> I think... I think uh, I'm not sure we need to answer for a culture question, but the bills are relevant because they still affect people's lives and people listen to their songs. I mean, even in, to, in today's streaming generation, the Beatles, I think, are one of the top, they've been consistently one of the top five bands on streaming. Mm-hmm. The relevance of the fact that songs, the songs resonate with every generation. 
And I have two teenage daughters, uh, Eva and Alice, who are 13 and 15. And they'll say to me, Dad, have you heard this band? They're great. They're called Fleetwood Mac. (laughs) And they think think they're probably the same era as the Arctic Monkeys. And music for that generation is timeless as it should be because it's faceless. They listen to it on device, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the Beatles pop up, and they are... They are great. So that's why it's still relevant. Wow. Bless autoplay. Eh? Um, what is astounding? So at the playback yesterday, you started talking about the tech and what is called demixing. Can you explain to the layperson what this might be? And it's Peter Jackson's team in New Zealand that do it. Yes, I can. I can do the best I can. Yeah. Imagine you baking me a delicious cake mm-hmm. and me going, I love that, but I want it to be slightly different. I don't really like chocolate cake. So what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah is I'm going to reduce that cake back into flour, eggs, butter, sugar, etc. Mm-hmm. Without giving you a great recipe. We worked, I've worked very close with Peter and the audio team on this mm-hmm. Get Back film. We've just, we, we, we finished last year, which is sort of, it's, it's a remake of Let It Be or re um, mm. documentary. And they, because of Peter's demands of being so meticulous when it comes to documentary stuff, actually looked into the way the police were using forensic audio. Oh, wow. To try and listen to people talking that they couldn't hear. Mm-hmm. And that could then be applied to dialogue in films, which is always a tricky thing. And they worked with a AI specialist in New Zealand and in America mm-hmm. I think, on developing technology where you could clean up an audio recording. So, for instance, if you and I are talking and I'm right now in a bar somewhere, which sadly I'm not, <laughs> in the studios, but if I was in a busy bar and people mm. were buying me drinks and telling me how great yeah. I was, which is yeah, what yeah. I would I'd love to hear, <laughs> and you didn't want to hear that, um, we could remove that audio. And so from that technology we used on Get Back, which where you know Paul would be talking and John would be playing the guitar and the guitar would overpower the voice. Mm-hmm. They would be able to remove the guitar from the voice. Now, the album Revolve, in fact, every early Beatles album is, was, was never intended to be used, even listened to in stereo, mm-hmm. uh, which is, what we, is how we listen to music mainly now. Mm-hmm. And so my dad and Jeff Emmerich would record the band first. Your dad obviously being George Martin for anybody who's lived under a rock for the past 70 years. I think he's George Martin. Could have been the postman, but I think. <laughs> um, he, uh, they, they would, they would just, you know, get a get a great performance of the band and record that to one track of tape. So it's a mm-hmm. bit like recording yeah. something on your phone, and then giving it to me and me going, okay, I want to t- separate the drums, the bass, the guitar, like mm-hmm. separate the cake, and that's what demixing is. Absolutely incredible. And you showed us some. Well, you you played us some examples of what was and then what turned out to be an individual tracks, and it was. It got to the point where it was almost like hearing it live, and I was expecting four people to come out behind the curtain and go, "That was us." It was. It, it got quite surreal and got quite mind blowing, I must say. And it does involve AI. There's an AI that does understand some somewhere the difference between John Lennon's voice and George Harrison's voice, things like that. Yeah, it's it's quite scary in a way. This is, uh, you know, according to Stephen Hawking, what will destroy us all? It'll be the yeah. Beatles, but um, it'll be AI of some kind. Yeah, what there's a guy called Emile Del, Delaray, his name, which is a great name, mm. um, who's the person in New Zealand I was working closely with on this and applying his technology to to my own needs, yeah. Beatles' needs, if you like. He would say to me, listen, the more information I can give the computer, so the more sound templates I can give, whether it's mm. George House's guitar or whatever, the more that the computer can learn mm. what it needs to listen to and what it needs to extract. 
And the processing plant they, they were using was vast. I think, you know, New Zealand would probably shut down for a couple of days while they were running John Lennon's voice through through this process. Right. I'm not bad at audio. Mm. Um, I'm pretty good when it comes to the sort of technical aspects of stuff. Mm. I have no idea, not a hope that uh, that how they do it. I just mm. don't. I, you know, I've been looking into this for a long time. I used a little bit of this on, I did a Beatles film with Ron Howe called Eight Days a Week where mm-hmm. the Beatles fans are screaming nonstop and I'm trying to make it bearable in a cinema. And I used a bit of this for that, but it was nothing like the technology they have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is absolutely astounding. So some of the things that happen is that you can hear Ringo's drums, for instance. And you called Ringo yesterday at the playback, probably not a hippie, but a punk. Tell me why Revolver is a punk record. Because <laughs> I love this aspect. Of it. This is what I really love. Things you say in conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, because he is peace of love. So I'm going to get several trouble for this. It's funny how we have this perception of, of different generations being more polite than the new generation. Mm-hmm. And of course they weren't. I was talking to this with a friend of mine last night, just talking about, you know, the, the oh no, we were, we, were, we were also innocent back then. Of course people weren't. It was the, it was the same. It's just mm-hmm. a division of it. And, mm-hmm. and, and the, but the Beatles played hard. And they, I mean by played hard, they, they hit their instruments and they sang loudly. Mm. What's that than most other artists do now for enough? And generally probably because they had to, they played live with very little PA systems and so when i said ringo was a punk because people don't realize he actually was whacking the drums yeah yeah and because there's a thing called tape compression or compression which is essential for records uh, where by louder things become quieter and quieter become things become louder so they so the needle doesn't jump out of the groove on a record and ring and this is used a lot on revolver so people don't realize that ringo was whacking his drums mm-hmm. and so he's a punk not a hippie and and is instinctive i love what you said actually um about I felt like I was in the room with the band because ever since, um, maybe mistakenly, people gave me the keys to the Beatles' kingdom, which was <laughs> the love show. The one thing, I remember, I remember walking in when my dad was working on Beatles Anthology, mm-hmm. and the thing that astounded me was that I could walk into Abbey Road and press play on a tape machine, and I, would expect, I was expecting it to sound old. Mm, yeah. The, the recordings sound like they're being done at the time they sound oh, like yes. in the room that's like time travel for me that's just yes. magical and that 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 was the thing that sorry to interrupt you but absolutely startled me from hearing and on amazing speakers i could hear the past the present and the future of music and i started to freak myself out because it is so very raw and they play so caustically as well on this album in particular, and I think specifically, we get old, right? We, yeah. we, you know, and there's nothing we, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. Mm. But the performances don't. I think Paul is 25 when they're doing Revolver, and so when he's singing "Got to Get into My Life" or or um, for no one or here, there, and everywhere, he is. He'll always be 25 on that record. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I love about, say, my kids, for instance, not knowing the ages of people when they're listening to them. So if I can get that time travel so you can be in the room with them, mm. it's, there's, something be- there's something beautiful about mm. that. I think mm. there's something really kind of like recording is a, is a snapshot. Is people are frozen in time. I think Peter did this actually with the World War I documentary he did. 
He showed us that yeah. 18 year olds are just 18 year olds. And it was yeah, a yeah. friendless thing they were going through. And <laughs> very different. But in Revolver, I'm trying to go, okay, this is a band who are young, like they're really young in a room making great music. And so that's what you should listen to, nothing else. Don't listen to the history, listen to the song. And that that really came out. I say uh, there was a room full of people who were absolutely silent listening to this thing, and then all looked like they'd been on a roller coaster afterwards. Everyone had this sort of delirious look in their eye after this, <laughs> turn, especially because it ends with "Tomorrow Never Knows," which is just going to take you into those places anyway. You said that there are lots of outtakes, and the outtakes are quite important. I want to talk about two. One being that you heard your father's voice on some of the outtakes, and for you personally, that was you know a journeyman for you to go through because there are things that you hadn't heard and you know suddenly he's there and it is like he's the age that he was then now well yeah there's a, it's a, there's mixed emotions i always feel slightly guilty about doing this anyway because he's not mm. he's not here mm. what would he think i think generally you know i do ask myself that question you know what would he i you know i'm 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 taking one of his paintings and uh and 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 redoing it to a mm. certain aspect mm. I think he'd be proud and happy. I think he'd be, mm. you know, because I worked with him on when we did the Love Project, the Love Show in Vegas and the, and the Love Album. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd play him stuff and he'd go, he'd say to me, God, it's like, it's like audio is now like putty for you in your hands. <laughs> Isn't it? Awesome stuff. Was, there's an outtake, as you refer to, of Eleanor Rigby, him recording the strings of, to Eleanor Rigby. It shows his collaborative nature and how he worked. And if you hear the string players. He asked, he asked Paul, who's up in the booth, mm whether they should play this um, with vibrato or not, which is, you mm, know, yeah. the tremolo, the string players will play classical, mm. they should play it without any, which is non-classical. Mm-hmm. And the string players themselves go, we, we, think it's, we think it's better non-classical, we think it's better with no vibrato. And you hear my dad stop and he goes, yes, okay, let's do it without. <laughs> and then he says, but if you've got something to say, then you should play with a vibrato. And I love that. It's so my dad. It's like, if you've got something to say, it's not like, okay, on from, mm. you know, from bars 24 to 26, mm. then you should play with a vibrato. It's like, if you have something to say, it's so emotional. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that is, as I said to you yesterday, that, that thing, that virtually, you know, we listened to Ellen Rigby, and we, before take two, they have this conversation. So no one would have heard the Ellen Rigby strings before then, say 10 minutes before that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's just on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And it's that, I love the beauty of, 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 you know, I'm sitting to you, I'm in the Abbey Road right now. I love the fact that people can walk into an empty room and out of thin air, mm. music is plucked and put down and then enjoyed for, you know, for, for in this case, 56 years. Yeah, it's the alchemy uh, of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it is it's it's one of the things, ever since I was a kid and I got the privilege of going to studios, when I was four or five years old, mm. I used to wander around studios. It was that, th- this is where magic happens. Mm-hmm. It really is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the other demo um, is the Yellow Submarine that a lot of people have picked up on, which is John's version, which is this very sad, almost Woody Guthrie-esque, as you were saying. Sad, sad song, and it gets transformed. How do these early versions affect how we listen to the album itself? Because everything will be on the big deluxe set, won't it? Yeah, everything will be on the deluxe set. And a lot of Beatles fans want things to collect. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't believe in that. I think music should be played like guitars should be mm-hmm. played, should be collected. And I think that the whole point of what we're trying to do here is almost like, you know, I love going around galleries and you see early sketches of paintings. Mm-hmm. And you see how the artists, it's, there's something in true artistry about how someone can develop their own art into something they want, they then want to present to the public. Mm-hmm. And in the case of John singing, I didn't realize that John initiated the, the Yellow Submarine. Mm-hmm. It's a very different song. It's very sad. It's like, you know, 
in the place where I was born, no one cared. Mm. No one cared, is what mm. he sings. Very different from living in a yellow submarine or having quite a happy time. And you can see the way that John, you can hear the way that John and Paul work together. You know, how about this, John? And they're always pulling each other in different directions. It's like, you know, a classic example is, uh, you know, it's getting better all the time where, you know, Paul sang that and then John came and said it can't get much worse. (laughs) And it's just, that's just brilliant. And this album is, Revolver is odd because it's a true bit of collaboration. Mm -hmm. Paul said to me, we sat down and listened to it together as we always do. And he goes, this is the point where, you know, as a band, we were were just very, you know, this is where we became individuals. They weren't this pop group Mm -hmm. anymore wearing the suits they became this how about this how about this idea john i want to do a mantra which is called tomorrow never knows was just in the key of c and i'll just play one chord forever paul saying i want you know i want to do got got yet got you into my life a sort of motown song and george saying you know i want to do more indian music Mm -hmm. and they're all going yeah great yeah okay they're not questioning each other they're just going yeah they're on this journey and and i love that I've been privileged to sometimes do good stuff. Sometimes I've good, but not not very often. And it's a bit like surfing, like anyone who does. does and, and I and I'm not that I surf, but I'm just saying that that it's like catching a wave. You you can catch a wave, and it's amazing. You know, I've got friends like you know other people like Nigel Godrich. We talk about this, and mm-hmm. I was just saying, you catch a wave, and you are on it, and it's like this is amazing. But you fall off again, <laughs> and most of my life I spend paddling, treading water, and being hit by waves trying to get to catch another one. The Beatles were constantly catching. waves. Waves. Mm. They didn't hit the water once. They just basically went, oh, let's try this. They go, oh, it worked. Especially in this period of time. It's like the developments and songs you hear, and that's the great thing about the outtakes. You go, oh, yeah, this is interesting. But it's not as good as the final version, but I can see where they're going with this. Now, this is a real labour of love for you. It's I, I didn't get the impression that you've been collared into this and you're reluctantly dragging your heels to the studio every day. How long does it take and why is it important to give it so much heart? It took, I don't know, it took about, I didn't, I don't do these things constantly. I sort of go off and do other mm. things and come back to it. Um, so we did, we were on it for about four or five months, I suppose. Mm. Of course, I have to throw my heart into it because there's a whole bunch of people that really, really care about this stuff. I'm surrounded by people saying, you know, when are you going to mix, you know, the first question I'll get is, when are you, okay, when are you going to mix Rubber Soul now? <laughs> yeah. Um, to other people saying, please stop doing this. <laughs> I won't do records. Right. Um, uh, and 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 you have to you know, walk your fine line constantly. Mm. You know, painting as I say, painting a moustache on the Mona Lisa. <laughs> and also, you have to understand that that I have Paul and Ringo and Olivia and Yoko and Sean and Danny Harrison mm. all entrusting me. They just mm-hmm. go, okay, we 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 trust you to do this. And you can't go, you can't. I can't go on Instagram and say. Hey, guess I'm the next big thing. I've been trusted. You know, this is, this is, I'm not one of those people. Mm -hmm. You have to to take this to heart and go, okay, this is your legacy here that I am working on. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I have to put a lot of heart into it, a lot of care. It's not, it's never another record. I mean, I mean, if it was, I mean, how many people talk about, talk talk to people like you about mixing records? You know, it's not (laughs) exactly, so it does, it moves a lot to lots of people. So I can't take it for granted. Completely, and I would utterly recommend anybody who needs to hear music like it was made now to get this. Thank you so much, Giles, and you were brilliant yesterday talking us all through it. You know everything. You're fantastic. That was great. (laughs) It's an absolute privilege and pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. With a phenomenal success of Knives Out spawning a sequel, Kenneth Branagh's Murder in the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, and the release this week of See How They Run, 
it is official. The classic whodunit is back. And although the genre has always had its tongue planted firmly in its cheek, Helena Rain's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies elevated satirical elements to new heights. After a party game goes very wrong, a group of Gen Zedders stuck in a remote mansion during a hurricane tries to find who is bumping them off one by one. Here's the trailer. Who wants to play Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? So how do you play? If you draw the piece of paper that has the X on it, you are the murderer. Let's go. And if you're the murderer, you have to kill someone by touching them on the back. The most important part, if you come across a body, you have to yell, Body, body, body! Is that the lights? Our friend is dead. I'm a hot girl, I'm a hot girl. Someone's doing this. They're trying to kill us off one by one. That would be so obvious if I were the killer. Taking off my clothes in the window for the neighbors. Where are you? Sean, I could practically feel your delight emanate from next to me at the preview, so I don't have to ask you whether you liked it. Um, why did it work for you? Why is a wonderful question and maybe never ending. Um, I'm not particularly one of those people who does sit around and watch Ring or Scream or those. Sort of it never was really <laughs> what I wanted to do. When you have a gory slasher horror movie, you kind of know what's going to happen. There are types and there is a narrative and, you know, they're thrilling you and wanting you to be scared. But this is somehow different. There's, there's the fear factor, but there's also something else about how the characters are interacting. And I thought that the direction and the script were absolutely completely spot on and that when characterization often falls quite flat in these sorts of films here it wasn't so the setup being that there's a house party at someone's really you know rich parents house they're away and obviously we know what's going to happen don't we Alex we know that disaster is around the corner you get kids <laughs> gen z i believe you get alcohol you get drugs and you get oh let's play bodies 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 game and so therefore it can you know there are lots of tropes it can fall down and become quite flat and quite dry and i didn't get this at all i as you say i absolutely delighted it in it from about <laughs> 2 or 3 minutes in and we were in quite a bad mood because we, we we had travel problems and it, they disappeared <laughs> that's true um, do you think it is a film primarily for young people or does having a teenage son increase its enjoyment? <laughs> no, that increases the fear. <laughs> Maybe that's how it resonated a bit more. No, <laughs> I hope you're not doing that on Friday night when you're around so-and-so's house. No, I, I didn't find that at all. I really related to the characters. What's so wonderful about this, and I wonder if you, dis you know, I, I don't think you disagree, is that there is such an idea of the language and the peer pressure of how young people have to be. So you do get these gags about someone who does a podcast. You do get this stuff about, well, I feel you're gaslighting me, or these are my boundaries. And all this very, the wellness speak of now is in there. But that's not something that we're, you know, that is alien. May, if, even if a 20-year-old is saying that, I still understand what they're talking about. You know, I can still kind of empathise. Um, so not at all. Yeah. And I thought I would feel, oh, it's young people doing this. I, I thought it was fantastic. I didn't at one point think they're much younger than me. I, I mean, it, it got me thinking because there are some genuine laugh-out-loud moments uh, about the group sort of earnest concern about their social media or their Wi-Fi access or their podcasts, like you said. 
But isn't it entirely legitimate? I'm I'm just thinking nobody laughs if someone is hurt when their self-published poetry is trashed in an Edward Albee play. Everyone accepts it that, you know, it's a hurtful thing for someone to experience, but yet transmit sort of transform that into podcasts and suddenly it becomes trivial and superficial. Is that the movie prodding us that way or is that our generational lack of awareness prodding us that way? Might your son watching this find it a lot less funny and a lot scarier? Um, I'm not sure. He's very tough (laughs) in terms of these sorts of films. But what the film is, I mean, I really, it's a satire, isn't it? It's not set in a rich person's house for nothing. It is about what you do when you have enough money to be aimless, to afford drugs when you're 20 years old, to have fallen out with all of your friends and then got back together. There's something about that so that it can poke fun at what people's dreams and ambitions are. Because again, we're in late capitalism. It's about that, I think, as much as it is about a group of friends who start, who everything starts going horribly wrong. And obviously, listeners, Alex and I are trying to give no spoilers at all. <laughs> spoilers from the start um, that you can imagine. But do you not think we, that it's, I, it's it a It was satire? difficult, I have to say, even just putting questions together, it was difficult because a lot of stuff happens But throughout. what it reminded me of is an Inspector Calls, because it's about class constructs, but American class constructs and how they all perceive each other in terms of whether they have money, beauty, or otherwise, or status within, you know, either doing a podcast or being the most beautiful in the class. I have to say what it reminded me most of was Peter Schaffer's black comedy. Do you know it? No, I don't. Tell me about it. It's a play in which basically the lights go out and the theatrical conceit is that when the play starts at the beginning, the stage is pitch black, so you only hear the actors. And when the lights go off, in the play, the lights come on on stage, so you see them fumbling around, if that makes sense. So so it's a farce. It's a very good farce. But there were elements of farce in this, I thought. There were, there were a lot of pratfalls, and, but they were incredibly serious because the, the stakes were high. The majority of the film follows a group of young women, essentially, and, and it is in the finest tradition of whodunits, an ensemble cast affair of primarily young women. What did you think of the performances? I thought no one put a foot wrong. And I think that's really rare for film. And this is this is the director's first English language film as well. So she's still, you know, fairly new in all of this. I thought the cast were absolutely incredible, but I also thought supported by the script, which is incredible. I believe they were friends. And I think that is quite rare, don't you? In something that's just yeah, going yeah, to yeah. be a gore fest. Usually the characters are fairly flimsy to get the action round and to get the plot points happening. But this was really that they are really conflicted about who they are and who they're you know who's going to be loyal to them also in terms of them being quite gen z and all kissing each you know the girls kiss each other the girls kiss the boys boys almost kiss the boys but i don't think that quite happens i mean that was just fantastic i just thought that was done it was wasn't any way tokenistic it was completely coming from that script everything and i just thought i, I just thrilled in it i'd see it again i'd see it a few times actually yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i absolutely adored the performances I agree. I thought they were very, very strong, especially, I thought, Rachel Sennott uh, of Shiva Baby fame, who plays the podcast queen, you know, the one that gets constantly hurt by everything and upset by everything. What did you think of Pete Davison? I just thought it was quite interesting that anyone of a different age 
or gender was disposed of very quickly <laughs> to leave the young women to carry um, the rest of the show. I, I mean, ultimately, the genre is the vehicle. You know, the real subject is how thin a thread social cohesion hangs from, you know, when the chips are down. And you, 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 you can have the Poseidon adventure tell that same story in a disaster movie uh, frame or Dawn of the Dead with Zombies or Mad Max in a sci-fi shell, but it is that breakdown of niceties that, that's at the, at the core of it. I mean, I think what I enjoyed about it is that everyone is spoiled and annoying and makes terrible decisions and you kind of want them to die, but then you get to like them, which is a lovely sleight of hand by a storyteller. The thing that stuck with me most, I think, is that it was extraordinary to see a generation, and I only realized that through this film, it is a generation that is used to externalizing their internal monologue. They sort of say everything they're feeling as they're feeling it. And this is not a, a script thing or an expositional thing. And it was brilliant to see that in a high-pressure situation where there probably isn't the time to discuss trigger words or problematic pronouns, they did just that. <laughs> you know, as if being murdered is bad, but being cancelled is even worse. We loved it. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is a nationwide release now, and as you can tell, we highly recommend it. A warm welcome to Culture Bunker regular, Will Hodgkinson. Thank you very much. It's lovely to have you. Will is the chief music critic of The Times and also author of Guitar Man, The House is Full of Yogis and many, many more, including his new book. He has now put it upon himself to make the case for the likes of Darts, Lieutenant Pigeon, Shorty Waddy and much more in his new book, In Perfect Harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain. Because for some, 70s Britain was an era of not just the three-day week, five months without ITV and nationwide strikes but also wombling free, tartan trousers at half-mast and novelty rock. Will, <laughs> the first and most obvious question is, what made you want to delve into the brightly coloured, cartoonish world of sing-along? Well, I mean, these are the songs that, I, I, as a kid, I would have known. And then as a teenager, I would have rejected. You know, you get older and you, you, uh, you start looking back on this stuff. And it occurred to me that with all with magazines like Mojo and Uncut, which, I, you know, I love reading them and I, I like writing for them too, um, and a lot of the articles that, you know, that would appear in the, in the broadsheets, the stuff from the 70s that you were, uh, that was being revived was the tasteful, you know, it was Lou Reed or Led Zeppelin Punk. It was all the stuff that was kind of credible. And I thought, well, there's all this music out there that was, you know, these huge, huge hits... Um, which being sort of shoved in the background and seen as rather faintly embarrassing and, um, you know, sort of novelty-esque and silly. And I got thinking, well, they've got to tell stories because if a record like Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap sold, what, I think something like 7 million copies, so those are kids, mums and dads buying it, what was the story there? And then you look into it and, you know, 73, 74 package holidays abroad were affordable for normal working class families where they hadn't been before so suddenly this idea of the kind of you know chirpy chirpy cheap cheap was the ultimate you know disco summer smash 
um, you know, when you're, you're holiday in Torremolinos and, you know, had, oh, what a wonderful time we had. So I started thinking these songs have got social significance. And that's what it became. So the book's a social history, but it's a sort of serious look at the silliest music ever made. It was all this sort of stuff. That's where it came from. Mm-hmm, absolutely. We may we may um, go back to families later. Your book starts with 1970, of course, but it starts with Christmas 1970 and the chart battle for number one between Ride a White Swan by T-Rex and Grandad by Clive Dunn. If an alien had come down to earth at that point, or indeed even now, how can you explain that? And is that what you're trying to do, pitching T-Rex against Clive Dunn? Or are you pitching? You're showing that there are more similarities than we thought. Well, I think it was the beginning of the sing-along pop era because Mark Bolan, on the one hand, had been a very cool underground guy. He'd been in Tyrannosaurus Rex, and they were part of the hippie underground. It was folky, um, tasteful, uh, Tolkien-esque lyrics that you couldn't quite understand. And he was the one who saw that there's a whole new generation of kids coming up who, first of all, couldn't afford an album, And secondly, would be, you know, this is the new era of television. Colour TV was coming in. And he realised that he could take his love of Chuck Berry-esque rock and roll and try and turn it into the perfect three-minute song. Um, So he was with T-Rex, and Rider White Swan was really where it began. He was kind of... Uh, sort of coalescing 70s sing-along pop. You know, he's sort of almost the first guy. And on the other side, I thought Grandad was very um, relevant because that was the stuff that was going out to all the people who sat at home and watched Dad's Army. We had The Shadow of the Wall, which was kind of remembered. It was always... I'm sure you remember, Sean, you know, when we were kids, there's always, like, films about Great Daring Do, World War II, but we never got the real story. I mean, my own grandfather was in the war never told me a single thing and my grandmother would say oh the blitz spirit is wonderful i only found out find out after she died that her house in the east end had been hit by a bomb and killed her father you know she'd come back from school and the whole thing was destroyed so granddad was kind of the the encapsulation of that it was it was this guy who was in dad's army he was you know dad's army was safe gentle it was a world war ii that we could cope with he was kind of representing that mainstream nostalgic thing which was coming in the 70s because the 60s was all about futurism bright new future and then suddenly you had 1970 hit immediately with national strikes. There was a, you know, Ted Heath declared a national emergency only a couple of months into his his, uh, his prime ministership. So these were the two forces. I mean, in the end, both of them lost out to Dave Edmonds, but but it was it was that chart battle for the number one, which I felt told the story that I was trying to tell, which was this new era where people needed escapism. Were there any artists who straddled cool and novelty? I would say Mark Bolan. Um, and funnily enough, Slade, it's quite interesting because, you know, I've been going back through all the old magazines and enemies and so on. Slade started out, when they, when they first emerged, they were seen as a great, heroic kind of working-class rock band. But it didn't last. And it, that was a question that I kept coming up against is... Yeah, what is this credibility? What does credibility mean? And I think credibility is mostly based on image because, you know, you have a fantastic song, but then it's all about the rapping that it comes in. So why were Led Zeppelin credible? They didn't have their name on the album cover because that would be seen as crass. They didn't release singles because that was commercial. You know, they did, you know, endless guitar solos on Stairway to Heaven because that's a sign of great proficiency and virtuosity. 
But try writing a song as clever as Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Sheep and as catchy. It's not easy. I want you to tell us about the link between Giorgio Moroder and Chicory Tip. So this is remarkable. So Giorgio Moroder, yeah. of course, everyone knows as the you know godfather of disco. Chicory Tip were a band from Kent who were mostly a covers band and they were, you know, kind of not massively ambitious. Their manager, a guy called Roger Easterby, heard a song called Son of My Father, which was sort of about the generation gap. It was about not, you know, not doing the same things your father had done. And George M. Rode had written it. I think he'd recorded it, but it hadn't come out yet. So Roger Easterby very quickly thought, right, we, this is a great song, we need to record it. And he got um, Chris Thomas, who later engineered for the Sex Pistols, play four different moogs. And uh, my technical knowledge is very poor, but I think essentially what he did is he got these four moogs and he sort of patched them together. So you had that incredible sound at the beginning of um, Son of My Father. And it's so clear and strong. So they recorded this. And, of course, it became an absolutely massive hit, and they did much better than Giorgio's version. And, again, that was one of those songs that sort of signified the European connection. This song by an Italian-German, you know, got released, and everyone thought, you know, it became this European hit all over the place. On the opposite end of the spectrum were glam musicians, the cool people, influenced by these amazing pop records that you couldn't really admit to liking, but just absolutely nailed it, and especially regarding radio play and national mood. The funny thing is, is that the way glam is always presented, for me, Mark Boland was the guy. His, um, a woman called Chilita Segunda had the idea of, he's very slight, and he looked good in women's clothes. Had the idea of taking him down to Bieber and a shop called Alcacer on the King's Road, and that was glam. The trajectory is meant to be Bowie and Roxy Music were the arty glam people and they invented it. It's not quite like that. Mm. Sweet and Slade were releasing singles before the Roxy Music albums, which is about 73. So they were sort of ahead of the game, but it's a kind of a class thing, although actually Roxy Music were mostly working class and so is Bowie. Bands like Slade, Sweet, Chicory Tip, you know, they didn't have the resources uh, that Bowie had, where he, you know, he had Freddie Beretti and these these uh, very sophisticated designers and thinkers. They tended to have people like their mum to, you know, he could sew things on. And so, you know, for example, with Slade, Dave Hill was the the big Slade character. He got his sister. Do you know the photograph of Bowie? He looks like an Egyptian pharaoh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wanted to do that, but he didn't quite know how. So he thought, <laughs> right, I'll get this cape. And I'm going to get my sister to sew on these metallic uh, discs. He came out of the dressing room and he said it was like that advert where, with the smash aliens where they all start falling about laughing. He said the, the entire place went in hysterics. And, and um, Steve Marriott from The Small Faces said, you look like a metal nun. And so from then on, he was known as the metal nun. It was <laughs> you know, it's all very cheap glam. It was thinking, well, what would Elvis Presley have done? You know, well, I call it bricky glam, which I kind of think it, it basically is. It's sort of doing it yourself, you know, these were working-class guys. And funnily enough, the women involved in that scene were sort of anti-glam in a way. So you had Susie Quattro. And if you look at those pictures of Susie Quattro, no makeup, leather mm-hmm. catsuit, very tough, no-nonsense rock and roll, even though the music is basically the same. They are incredible to look back now at the Quattro stuff. Who's the most revealing um, do you think that you spoke to for your book? You've spoken to lots and lots of people who are absolutely involved in all of these processes. Were there things that you didn't know that you discovered from your interviews? There were loads. The period that really fascinated me, which was, the, which was just after Bolan, 70, 71, 72, was this period when a handful of session musicians and songwriters 
basically took over the charts with a load of made-up bands. Um, and this would have been a guy called Roger Greenaway, Roger Cook, and they did the New Seekers, which were who were a real band, but they did. Uh, they wrote "I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing," which became the Coca-Cola advert. Of course, Square Suburbia's answer to the hippie dream. You know, it was for the, all those people with wall-to-wall carpeting who would never go to Woodstock. You know, suburbanites. From there, that was a huge, huge hit. But from there, Roger Greenaway in particular was very revealing because he and a guy called Tony McCauley they realised that bands were trouble, you know, that they one moment they were working on a building site, the next one on top yeah. of the pops, and they didn't have any professionalism. Yeah. So they sort of got rid of the band, and they'd hire um, as these singers I spoke to called Sue and Sonny, who are on everything. Yeah, they were great, very glamorous. Yeah. And then there's a guy called mm-hmm. Tony Burrows, who used to sing with everyone, and there was a, a 1970 episode of Top of the Pops where Tony Burrows was in four made-up bands. He was doing Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes by Edson Lighthouse, mm-hmm. Gimme Dat Ding by Pipkins, United We Stand by Brotherhood of Man, and My Baby Loves Loving by White Plains, none of whom existed. And he was yeah, running from one stage to another. And then he got rumbled. Roger Greenaway got a call from Stanley Dorfman, who's yeah. the producer of Top of the Pops, and he said uh, he had a new single called Lady Pearl by Current Craze, obviously another made-up band, and... and Stanley Dorfman said, I love your new single, it sounds great. Just, uh, just out of interest, who's, who's in the band? He said, oh, yeah, well, it's Tony Burrows, Sue and Sonny, Roger Greenway. And he went, oh, not another of your made-up bands. And he said, well, if it's a hit, what's the problem? And the answer was, you would not believe the amount of complaints we've had from people on top of the pot saying the whole thing's a stitch-up, which in a way it was. But at the same time, it led to this, this period of, you know, these very, very joyful Kind of, most of them, if you listen to them, they're sort of American soul with a bit of bubblegum. So he was very, he was fascinating and revealing, you know. And I mean, so many people. There's a woman called Linda Lewis who uh, came later. She was in the, there's a chapter called this Disco of Discontent. During the winter of discontent, when that kind of suburban mums and dads disco is big, as a, yeah. again, as a sort of form of escapism. And she was talking about the racism that she would suffer. She's mixed race in growing up in the East End. She went to this stage school and she said one guy in particular was awful. She said, oh, he was terrible. You know, he called me all kinds of racist names. And I said, well, who was he? She said, have you ever heard of the Milky Bar Kid? I was like, oh my God, the Milky Bar Kid is a white supremacist. By the way, I don't know which one we're talking about here. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 of course. Don't sue us. How did the decade close and what sounded the death knell for novelty pop? Mrs. Thatcher, because it was Mrs. Thatcher was, Margaret Thatcher was ushering in a new era of global capitalism. Capitalism was always there. You know, before then you had Callahan and then before then you had Wilson. You realise the more the more I spoke to people, you realised how parochial everything was. It all came out of working man's clubs, you know, a variety of clubs, Saturday night at the Palladium. It was all very mm-hmm. cheap. There wasn't big money. But the dawn of the 80s, it was it was a new era. And I think the, one, the, the song that symbolised it for me came out in 1980, which is sort of straddling the line between the um, sing-along nostalgic tackiness of the 70s, but also the sort of new era of the 1980s. And that's, there's no one quite like Grandma by the St. Winifred School Choir. It's quite hard to say that that's a masterpiece. You know, I could fight, I could fight more for Grandad because I think Grandad's got a kind of psychedelic edge. This book, as we're saying, is not just about post-Beatles and Stones pop culture in Britain, but takes in agriculture 
as well as politics. There's so much about class in it. There's so much about family in it. As we're saying, it's about holiday culture. It's about Europe, even food and drink. There's lots of that about it. Absolutely fascinating. We've only touched the surface. But thank you so much, Will. Everybody, you can buy Imperfect Harmony because it's out now at all good bookshops. And I'm sure we'll put some mouldy old dough on the playlist. (laughs) I hope so. Narco Saints is the latest Korean Netflix series to captivate an international audience's attention. When a hapless entrepreneur, played by Ha Jung-woo, gets embroiled in a drug smuggling ring, he has little choice but to become a double agent in law enforcement's efforts to catch the big boss. Here is a taste. In Korean, of course, we are all about the Atma. Turn around! 제가 아니라는 걸 어떻게 아세요, 근데? 전유한 목사라고 아시죠? 주님, 이 또한 주님의 계획이십니까? 지금 강인구씨 이렇게 만든 게 바로 전유한입니다. 저걸 뭐 어떻게 하라는 거예요? 진짜 마약상이 된 것처럼 행동해야 합니다. 술이 나면 왜 돌아오셨습니까? 돈 벌러 왔다고 <laughs> Sean, there were Breaking Bad vibes to this and it's what happens if you insert someone from harmless world A into dangerous world B. Does the point of view of an innocent help or is it a bit of a cop-out? Well, clues in the name, isn't it? You know, the narco saints, there's going to be some people who feel a little bit conflicted, or at least you think you do. And... Um, As someone who, don't shout at me, hasn't watched Breaking Bad apart from the first one once, I was really up for it. And also because so much Korean drama is, you know, it's hot right now, um, trademark. You know, it, 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 I just really want to see after Squid Game and Parasite and all the others, how mm. we then get into this genre and what archetypes are shown and how that that gets flipped around and explored. And I really loved this. I thought it was just absolutely spot on. In a way, some of it, you think you know what's going to happen and maybe it sort of does because the archetypes, as I say, are so strong, but you want it Mm. to. You're willing the good guys on and you're hoping that the baddies will get their come up hunts, but like in a few, you know, in a few shows time where you've really seen them sort of start to warp everything and and skew the world. Say you can see what they're doing to this world that they've completely corrupted. So I lapped it up, actually, and I've done three now out of six, I believe it is. Oh, okay. I'm two in. Um, is this part of the franchise that contains Narcos and Narcos Mexico, or is it an entirely self-standing item? I haven't seen the other Narcos, so I wasn't a hundred percent sure about it. I think it's self-standing, but that's very much right. me. In that it has a certain look and a feel, and I think just because of the actors. There's something else going on with what they do. And there's a real understatedness, I think, in Korean drama in the really, you know, action packed scenes that you get these deadpan looks, you get this deadpan That's true. script. There is a there is a distinct acting school, isn't isn't it? That Yeah, there's yes, it, it, there's there's the repressed idea that there's so much going on, mm. on underneath the surface, but the surface is fairly still. And I find that fascinating. So to watch it, to just watch characters interacting and say in high drama, but with very low drama aesthetics, it's, it, it's just so interesting and just another take that I do think we need. It's very British in many ways, isn't it? That That sort of 
still waters and a lot going on underneath. And they're doing a lot of classic drama. Sorry to interrupt you, but you know, if if we want to, because I just want to hop in to talk about Huang Jungmin, who plays the baddie. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. The baddie being a pastor, of course. (laughs) You know, know, when you have that, which is a classic of 50s um, cinema, isn't it? It's the bad man um, dressed up as vicar. You have that and probably before. He is so good and he is an example of that understated you know how evil and how it goes through. And yet he can play a pastor and a baddie at the same point and people will believe both. So the side that knows his bad side will, but the side that he's now got, you know, got going to church and taking, drinking a certain um, substance um, will also believe in his goodness. And I think that's wonderful. It's very grey and green as well, actually. Hmm. You mentioned Squid Game. I mean, a runaway success. Parasite, it, uh, taking Top Gong both in Cannes and at the Oscars. Do you think Western audiences are beginning to tune into Korean culture, language and aesthetic in a big way? Or is Korea producing things deliberately now for a Western audience? It's not clear in my head. That's why I want to talk about it. Well, could it be both? (laughs) My annoying answer would be. Um, I think that Korean culture has been explored more. And I think that people are discovering it more as, as, you know, Hollywood tropes become sometimes more Hollywood and people tire of it. So I think there is more of an acceptance of different ways of storytelling. But also, yes, Korean drama does feed on a Western tradition at points, but not everybody does. Not every director does. Um, Korea has, you know, it's a few decades of really, really strong cinema, though. And there are some fantastic, mm, fantastic mm. Um, films out there before everything sort of exploded. Um, so, yes, I do think that's it's true. But it was a sort of well-kept secret among cinephiles, wasn't it? But this is what what's so interesting about Netflix, isn't it? And we have said this before, is Netflix has the power to produce a lot of shine, but also to bring in world cinema or to make world cinema into these series that become, like Squid Game, something for a global audience. Mm. And that is a real strength and that is something absolutely fantastic. You know, as much as you might hate the streamers and Netflix and the idea of that, they have brought a much global way of telling stories into a mainstream environment, I think. Um, there's a wonderful, a wonderful film. If anyone wants to see the day he arrived, um, which is a Korean film, I just thought of it. It's fantastic. You know, if you want to start seeing different ways of filmmaking and and some of the less linear stuff, go and explore these things. Yes, the timeline of this is very non-linear. Does that clash a little bit with the documentary style of it? Um, that you expect to be quite linear, you expect it to set out the facts, sort of as they happened, or did it work for you? It worked in the sense that. When you have characters who are in a situation and you know in five years' time a similar character, a narco-saint, will be in the same situation where where within crime and corruption people are interchangeable and it's the corruption that sort mm. of is the monster and, the, and that keeps getting fed, it works in that way. Do you understand what I mean? I'm being deeply Yeah, 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 no, here, completely, completely. But the people are interchangeable and they're interchangeable within this yeah. world. It doesn't matter if they live or die to, you know, whatever, say, is feeding the, the drugs cartel monster. And, and in that way, I really liked it because non-linear does show you that. It's a reflection of, you know, we're all collateral yeah. in that way. So I thought it was perfect. Tonally, it's perfectly. It, it is very complex. I mean, there are points where you do have to really concentrate in what's going on and suddenly where the double cross is. And some of it's very simple, but then you'll get a double cross and go, oh, I see, and a loyalty will change you. So, I mean, Mm. I did have Mm. to pay a lot of attention to it. My mind wanders (laughs) at best of times. But yeah, absolutely (laughs) loved it. You know, if you're in for it, watch it on a big screen and just sort of explore it. 
We don't disagree much, but I am a slightly dissenting opinion on this. Um, I don't think it's terrible. I just found it ultimately a, a little disappointing because it, I think it overly focuses on the subject. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but it's like drugs, gangs, drugs, guns, money, you know, danger, guns. But for me, the genius of things like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad is that they reveal the in- incredibly ordinary things going on inside the protagonists and the very ordinary world around the underworld they occupy. And that's what draws me in the story. For for me, this was a little bit like a a longer episode of Locked Up Abroad, which is very good. You know, those documentaries are extraordinary. I'm I'm not saying it to diminish it. There is a lot to admire. The acting is superb. The cinematography is superb. I agree with you. The story is genuinely bizarre. And yes, I checked it. It is real. It is broadly well. All the stuff with the fish exporting and oh, I mean, it is bizarre. But ultimately, I found none of the characters either attractive enough or appalling enough mm-hmm. to draw me in. I guess I, I I found it all a little bit too matter of fact. Yes, in the fact of dramatic conflict, you know who the goodies are, you know who the baddies are, and when mm. not all of the characters know that, you know that as a viewer. So you're not necessarily thinking yes, but they're really pulled in that direction now. They are they steer morally they steer it in the same direction, so it doesn't give you that. But still, I I I really liked it. I really liked it. Yeah, I mean, I'm two episodes in, and I will without a doubt watch the whole thing a because it's actually very good it, it you know it might not get five stars from me but it's actually really good and also because the story is so extraordinary i i actively want to see what happens next which indicates good storytelling it just didn't blow my socks off as it did yours Now, a couple of weeks ago, Alex gave his best song of all time. But we were so impressed with Alex's high culture man um, that we really, really want to ask him again to broaden our horizons, especially me. So what I really want to know, Alex, is what is your second favourite song of all time? Or is up there, is up there with the other. <laughs> and listeners loved it as well. Got loads of feedback, which I thought was lovely because usually it's like boo, boring, whatever. The tune today is a recording by Alessandro Moreschi. He's the only ever Vatican City castrato, a boy castrated to preserve the soprano voice, to be recorded. He's believed to have been castrated in 1865, a few years after the practice was outlawed in Italy, but before it was sort of eschewed by the Pope and Vatican City is a sort of state within a state. Because the practice was outlawed in Italy in 1861 officially and recorded uh, sound came in at the very tail end of that century, he's the only one we have on record. He made a handful of recordings on wax cylinders in 1902 and 1904 with the Sistine Chapel chorus. The B-side of one of them was actually a a message by the, an Easter message by the Pope. 
They sound strange and creepy, like the sort of soundtrack to a horror film. Some say he was a very mediocre singer to begin with. Others that modern tastes are different. It is certainly true that Moreski was well, well past his prime when these recordings were made. In any case, I think they deserve a place in any greatest recordings list, not because of artistic merit, but as incredibly strange and touching artifacts of historical significance, the sort of relics of an extraordinary barbarism uh, in an uncomfortably recent era. So here is uh, Alessandro Moreschi singing Bach Guno's Ave Maria. See what you think. that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Will Hodgkinson and Giles Martin for joining us today on The Culture Bunker. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is in the top of the show notes. From myself and Alex and producers Alex Reese, Jay Bailey and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye now. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Sean Pattenden, with Alex Andre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and the producers were Yelna Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production by Kasia Tomashevich. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Music.